0: The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Odlin Brown, BD Developments, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. Can we achieve liftoff of electric passenger helicopters? Danny Sittenham, the president and founder of Helijet, says, yes, we can. But the but Sitnam refers to is, in fact, many yes buts. Yes, helicopters can be powered by electricity, but the power plant for helicopters still needs to be built. Yes, batteries can carry enough of a charge to fly from Vancouver to Victoria, but the weight will eliminate a number of seats. Yes, we can, but regulations need to change. Sitnam says these are challenges that can be addressed and overcome. No, he corrects himself and says they will be overcome. It may still be years before you'll be able to hop onto an electric helicopter for a quieter and lower carbon intense flight to Victoria. But those flights will be arriving. If not soon, sooner than you may have thought. I invited Danny Sittenham of Helijet to join me for a conversation that matters about the process of building and flying in electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. Danny, welcome. Thank you, Stuart.
1: Wonderful to be here.
0: Am I living in Technicolor when I say we can fly in electric helicopters?
1: No, you're not. Uh, you know, Stuart, I think we kid ourselves amongst industry. Um, I think we all have been familiar that uh, the Jetsons are here, and that's a becoming a reality. We kid ourselves in our industry, but um, it's very much right in front of us, and it's, to your point, pretty close, a lot closer than the the general public see that electric or certainly sustainable power will be moving these aircraft through the air with passengers and cargo one day.
0: So what are you doing specifically to help to advance and move us towards having electrical vertical takeoff and landing aircraft?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, a big play is the infrastructure required. You know, I mean, you, you've got to land these vehicles somewhere And you need to charge them at some point in time when they, uh... so what we're spending more and more time is on our existing infrastructure. So the heliports that we manage and operate today, uh, obviously in Vancouver and Victoria and Nanaimo, we're looking at how we can electrify that and start setting up that infrastructure to electrify it one day for electric vehicles, um, aircraft, I should say. In the meantime, we're making the baby steps by trying to transform our company into electric vehicles. So we can take you from the heliport up to the city in a, in courtesy vans. So we're boarded courtesy vans. We're putting in charging stations at the heliport so you can charge your vehicle when you do come by and take a flight with us. And then hmm. develop the heliports to electrify it.
0: So you're not focusing just on the aircraft? No.
1: It's a company as a whole. Yeah, we're trying to move into that arena. We have some very I'll say grandiose, but very, very opportunistic building infrastructures that we're looking at at YVR that will become totally sustainable, electrifying, and basically building the infrastructure and the mindset and the culture of our people that that's where we're going. That's where we want to move the company to. And really a big chunk of it, Stuart, is, is really our customers who are asking. Government of BC, who's making major investments. And, you know, I wanted to mention today, uh, a big announcement by the feds putting 350 million into supporting sustainable aviation technologies in Canada. So we're trying to take advantage of that and, and get the stakeholders that are interested to look at this and say, there's capital other than that in, in your pocket, the governments, both feds and province want to start looking at this. So what
0: exactly are they supporting? Like you, you talk about some of these elements about putting in infrastructure. What else are, is involved in us being able to make this move towards
1: the entire trip being electric? Yeah. Well, I, a big key is convincing the people on the ground that live underneath it one day to look at it and not be a, a critic or a skeptic. So a lot of it is education right now. It's really educating. So we've set up a bunch of forums Uh, We're going through the country trying to sit with aviation communities and aviation associations, trying to gather what what don't you understand about this and why are you apprehensive about this technology and what can we do to educate ourselves and yourselves about the future of this technology coming in. So a big chunk of it will be the critics. And, you know, I have to admit the critics are right in our company, if I can put it that way, people look at this as saying, well, okay, is this going to become automated one day? And there are no pilots on board, you know, where, where is this going? Will I be out of a job? Um, you know, and things like that. So when you talk to pilots today of conventional helicopters and planes, they're kind of nervous about where this is going because they, you know, the, the automation and the technology could advance it to that place. So it's sitting down with the groups and, and talking about it. So that you try to knock down as many resistors towards getting the road open to get there. The
0: production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Odlin Brown, BD Developments, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. When I think about an electric helicopter, I think, wow, uh, you don't have that Fuel smell when mm-hmm. you're when you're <laughs> when you're warming up and taking off. Yeah. The noise reduction is dramatic. Yes. Um, what could be the problems? Yeah. Um, the only one that I want to know is to make sure that there's enough of a charge yeah. to get me from here to Victoria. Yeah. And and I have to say that's one of the things that causes me like to go. Okay, really. Um, because I've got my uh, drone pilot's license. Right. And yeah. I plug that battery in, yeah. and I'm lucky if it gets 20 minutes on a tiny little thing like this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so then I start to think, well, what are the engineering challenges of being able to store enough electricity on board a helicopter to get it from Vancouver to Victoria?
1: Yeah. Well, that's definitely the challenge right now. I mean, it, you know, technology is moving and, And R&D is moving to a place where these batteries are starting to become very sustainable. Um, Obviously, you've got a battery that weighs a lot, that doesn't give the kind of energy output that a gas powered uh, engine does today. So you've got a big, massive weight penalty. Okay. Instead of maybe carrying nine people in a conventional aircraft, you can maybe only carry four because the rest is payload for battery. Cool. to be able to give you a distance of, say, 100 nautical miles between a charge. Okay, so we're studying and working with two or three manufacturers now that we've shortlisted that we feel are just about there. They've got the distances. And I think what you'll see in, in this electric uh, vertical lift and, uh, technology is, yeah, you'll, you'll see commercialization for shorter hauls, like say 60 to a hundred miles. And then over time, as the technology matures and develops, they'll be able to bring the weight down on the battery, which will afford more payload into the cabin areas and eventually get longer range. I mean, they're, they're moving the aircraft now with four or five passengers. 400 miles. So they've got the technology there and they're going through the testing and the retesting to certify this. And I think the manufacturers will figure that problem out in due course. Uh, Certainly have it to cross over the Georgia Strait right now, very comfortably with lots of reserve.
0: So when I think about my drone and it's my comparison here, uh, this battery's finished. I pop it out, I stick another one in. Yeah. Will that be much the same kind of system? Because even with the tiny little battery, it takes a good couple of hours to charge yeah, it. Yeah. Um, you're gonna face those same kinds of challenges. Yeah. Whereas with you know a fuel powered helicopter, you drop in, you load her up and away you go. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So is that all part of the infrastructure that you have to build into place to be able to start to deliver this service?
1: Yes, in many ways. So the manufacturers are realizing that the infrastructure or the recharging system, you almost have to buy it with the aircraft. It comes with the aircraft and that'll be an installation at a facility such as a heliport or an airport or something where you'll have it. And the ability to recharge your aircraft will be in real time, 30 minutes, 45 minutes to recharge these very sophisticated battery systems that are being developed and off you go for another hundred miles or so oh, So you won't swap batteries out. No, no, you'll be just like a car recharging and holding there for 30 minutes on a parking pad.
0: Okay. Like when I hear some of these challenges, there's also, do pilots need to be retrained?
1: Yeah. Good question. Um, the regulator, the FAA have just come out with a paper showing that they're they're looking at the possibility of upgrading an existing pilot's license to be able to fly electrics. We don't think the training will be that, um, complex it's still, it has all of the mobility and all of the characteristics mechanically of a conventional helicopter. You just have an electric engine instead of a gas powered engine. So all of the characteristics, the movements and so forth, justify that a license will not have to start from scratch. Mm -hmm. You won't have to get a different license because you're flying an electric vehicle. I think it's very similar to how, um, say Harbor Airs is is installing electric engines into their Mm -hmm. existing Fixed-wing aircraft. I don't believe a pilot will have to get any new licenses for that.
0: The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Odlin Brown, BD Developments, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. The transition, though, from fossil fuel-powered uh, engines or power, you know, systems on board the aircraft to one that is electric is fraught with a whole bunch of design challenges. What are some of those issues that you need to address?
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's quite a few. I I think that always technology has a tendency to be ahead of the regulation. So the biggest influencer that can get it to commercialization is the regulatory body. Transport Canada and Nav Canada. Nav Canada who controls the airspace, Transport Canada who sets policy, and uh, sets the standards for these vehicles to eventually become commercialized is a few years behind the technology in writing the policies for it. So that would be one that's going to hold it. That's a big one. That's a very big one, <laughs> yeah. Stuart. Because what happens is patient capital becomes impatient. Right. You know the the capital that's going into the programs in the billions of dollars as these new startup manufacturers are developing these vehicles the capital is going to eventually get impatient if they don't see the commercialization of the investments they're making. So that is a key one and a close partner that we're working with, the regulator, to allow us to move in pace with the technology. Doesn't the regulator, however, though, say, okay,
0: you go ahead and build it, you do all that testing, Prove to us that it works. And then we'll start to look at, uh, you know, giving you the right to actually put it in the air and then put people inside that aircraft.
1: Yes, (laughs) I I would say that's true. That's typically how it works. You know, if you build it, we will come and and certify it. (laughs) The reality is time is of the essence when we're dealing with capital that's going in and resources that are going in. And I think it's happened through the history of aviation. It doesn't matter whether you're a Boeing, an Airbus or a small little company trying to develop an electric helicopter. It's always the massive investments needed and trying to encourage the regulator to at least get your resources ready because we're going to be ready a lot faster than you believe with readiness to test fly, certify, commercialize. When I think about the history of aircraft though,
0: I mean, we go back to the the Wright brothers, and they flew at Kitty Hawk. Mm -hmm. There was no regulator. Mm -hmm. Uh, They didn't have to sit around waiting for somebody to say, oh yeah, I certify you to fly this plane. And we went a long time with aircraft development in that unregulated environment. And I'm not suggesting that we go back there at all, but at least there was uh, the ability to grow organically. I I, I guess what I'm hung up on is what you're talking about, saying you need patient capital, Mm -hmm. and that the patience that's required to get us to where we all aspire to be. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, mm. <laughs> yeah, no. It's, you know, what's happening uh, with this whole eVTOL, the electric vertical takeoff and landing, uh, which has started now for five to seven years, the enthusiasm curve is very high, lots of capital was raised. And now we have a situation where the enthusiasm curve is falling off. People wanna see results. The technology is definitely there it should be in the next two or three years that these certain vehicles are going to get commercialized you're going to start seeing them fly you'll hear about them flying around with people and cargo on board two or three years the FAA are typically leading the regulatory pact amongst other countries and jurisdictions They're, they're usually always ahead of the pack in looking at innovation and ways to get these commercial vehicles in the air and in the airspace. Then Canada comes along and typically will follow the FAA's rules. Uh, ICAO over in, the, in the Europe and so forth and other jurisdictions. And that could be another two to five years behind the FAA. And that's where it starts dragging and the enthusiasm curve keeps falling on the capital to say, okay, I'm, I'm getting impatient here. But point being, it's, it, it's a challenge, and what we have done is we've formed a nonprofit group called CAM, the Canadian Advanced Air Mobility. That body is trying to pull regulators in, communities in, stakeholders in, manufacturers, all to work in unison and in step with the commercialization of these vehicles, certainly in Canada. And I feel we're doing a a good job in in talking with Ottawa to say, look, we need resources now because before you know it, you'll be getting applications ready for certification very shortly.
0: So what's your motivation in doing this? Because at the moment, like, it's not mandated that you have to do it. Yeah. Why have you decided that this is uh, a path that's worth exploring?
1: I think it's the right thing to do, Stuart. I I mean, I, I look at where we are and what we're doing in the footprint of aviation, that carbon footprint, and we're a major contributor to it. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel we need to do our part. And I think the uh, the vertical lift technology is becoming more and more important for urban operations and advanced air mobility. The helicopter is a very, very useful tool around the community, around the city. Hopefully we, you know, have been able to convince travelers and, and other people that You know, it's a great tool to move around. Now, if we can turn it into a more sustainable vehicle, I'm all over it. I I think that's wonderful. And I think it's the right thing to do. If we can convert uh, these technologies and allow us to become commercialized, then we see the things you just mentioned. Lower cost per seat, quieter, okay? A carbon footprint that's, you know, pretty well zero. Why not? Why wouldn't we want to spend time to do that? for our children's children.
0: Well, that is the reason, isn't it? Uh, Totally. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Developments, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. Slight little deviation from what we're talking about here because it's uh, talking about the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. You and your son have gone and created Helicopters Without Borders. Tell me about Helicopters Without Borders. uh, What's its mandate? And why did the two of you go and make
1: this happen? Yeah. So, um, you know, Owen and I discussed it at length, discussed it with the family, and we said, you know, it'd be wonderful if we could turn aviation to also doing something good for our communities. And um, at first, we went to see my brother, who lives in Africa and uh, is head of World Vision International there. And he's a big mentor to, uh, to my son. And we said, look, if we can get this technology to help people, wouldn't that be a good thing as well? You know, and use all of the advantages of this vertical lift technology. So we formed Helicopters Without Borders with the intention to, um, raise private capital, built a nonprofit company, got our charity status, and basically didn't have to look too far of who we can help. And we said, well, why don't we help the people in British Columbia? And a big part of that is the indigenous community, the very rural and remote communities that are throughout BC that don't have access the way you and I have to aviation. So we're using aviation to make deliveries of vaccines, groceries, water, simple things where a helicopter can come in and out of a community, drop these groceries and these goods off and help some people now it's moved into the development of as we studied and paid a lot of attention to what the communities really wanted is they need professional help dentists clinicians and so forth because it's really hard to get to the city you know come down to vancouver it could take you all day two days to get down from a remote community that doesn't have access to airstrips road other than maybe by boat so we said well why don't we bring them to the community so we've set up the aircraft now with mobile dental clinics we bring in dentists who give their time and clinicians are giving their time to go to communities and make appointments to the members of the community how many flights have you uh had so far we've had quite a few uh we've been working with the first nations health authority numerous health authorities within vancouver island and we're flying two or three flights a week now And doing like a milk run, if you will, you know, starting, say from Vancouver and going through Vancouver Island up to the Bella Bella area and so forth. And everything we've seen, everything we've heard is people are really appreciating the opportunity to be able to have access to aviation in this form. So this is a service that you're providing without charge? Without cost. Some communities will participate in cost and at a much reduced cost than what conventional aircraft would cost, they participate. Because we can't, like everything, the challenge now is scaling up to be able to satisfy everybody's needs. And we just can't do it. So um, we are asking for a little bit of money on certain flights and so
0: forth. So you said not-for-profit and you've got charity status. So how can people help you in the delivery of this much needed healthcare Mm-hmm. and the delivery of uh, essential uh, elements of, of living a good life.
1: Yeah. Well, there's two ways. One is, w- like most nonprofits, we need volunteers. So we're looking for volunteers to help us, and that can be right down to packing groceries, bringing things in, logistical issues that we need uh, you know, to sort through in, in delivering and making a mission happen. So, WWW, you know, helicopters without borders. If you go there, go onto the site, take a look at it, get familiar with it. Give us a call. We'd love to talk to everybody that's wanting to help us. And obviously, the other one is raising money. Mm-hmm. So if there's some generosity out there, we're looking for some uh, some good people that would like to uh, you know consider some funding.
0: So how have you been raising that money that you need right now, or are you basically? No, we're actually,
1: no, no, actually, it's been very uh, humbling. Uh, There's been numerous foundations that have approached us after we gave our presentations. Um, Owen and myself and the board of directors have put our antennae out there. And we have had some people and some philanthropic uh, foundations that have come up and have put some money on the table allowing us to sort of get first flights.
0: How'd you get to be such a good guy?
1: Um, I think it's my father. Yeah? I think it's dad. Yeah, he's always been there to help people. And I think we have just, you know, the communities have been very good to us. They've afforded us the opportunity Mm -hmm. to grow the programs that we've grown. And and it's definitely wanting to give back a little bit back to the communities. And certainly Mm -hmm. the people that need it more so than you and I.
0: Well, it goes back to what you said about doing the right thing when mm. it comes to going electric and also caring for other people. Yeah, Danny Sitton, you're quite an inspiration to me, so thank you for coming in and having this conversation. Thanks Stuart, appreciate yeah. it. Thank you for listening and please visit Conversationsthatmatter.ca and become a subscriber. And thank you to Audlin Brown, BD Developments and Stem Cell Technologies for their support.